לו פרשה נוויק, ואני רפואה שלמה, היה שרה בת שמחה. אין נא לפנדה, בתוך שאר חולי עמו ישראל, אמנו. וסטורי נו פרשה, no more stories. Till now, from the book of Bereshit, all the way until the end of Parashat Yitro, it's all stories. Now we begin the laws. I mean, the Torah is filled with 613 mitzvot, so the mitzvot have to begin somewhere. There's laws. It's a law book. So now we begin the, uh, the actual laws of the Torah. So we'll go through them slowly. We'll try to understand uh, each one. So the beginning of the parasha starts off, Ve'ele ha-mishpatim. Now we all know that, we learned in grammar school when we were young, you never start a sentence with the word and. And here the Torah starts, and these are the laws. So what is the and doing, the vav? So that she comes along and says that this parasha uh, of the laws is written... Uh, to come and tell us that just like the Ten Commandments were from Sinai, so these also, and these, which is, nobody should think that these laws were made up by Moshe or something like that. Then no, it's continuation. Just like the previous laws were from Sinai, so too these laws also are from Sinai. Now, if you remember, the last thing we learned in last session, in the end of Parashat Yitro, was the laws of the Mizbeach, the laws of the altar. So that she right away asks, what's the connection between the laws? A lot of the laws that we're going to learn now are monetary laws. What's the connection between the monetary laws? Uh, that obviously you need a court to judge. What's the what's the connection between that and the mizbeah? Again, the vav connects and as if there's a connection between what we learned by the mizbeah and these monetary laws. And as she says, from here we learn the location of where the Sanhedrin sits. The Sanhedrin sits, their offices are actually next to the Mizbeah, next to the altar. She's in the times of the Beit HaMikdash, when you went to the Temple Mount, next to the Beit HaMikdash, or exactly on the campus of the Beit HaMikdash, there was offices where the Sanhedrin, the high court, used to sit. So that's the two connections between the Vav. The first connection is that just like the previous laws were given from Sinai, the laws that we're going to learn in this Pirasha are also from Sinai. Second connection is that just like we finished learning about the Mizbeach, and these are the laws, is comparing that the Sanhedrin, the court sits where the Mizbeach is, namely on the Temple Mount. Now it says, Asher tasim So Moshe is being told by God, you should place the laws in front of them. So that she comes along and says, what do you mean place the laws in front of them? He says, like setting a table. Just like one sets a table, everything is there. The forks, the knives, the spoons, the soup, the salad, it's all prepared. Imagine you come to a table and uh, you don't have the cutlery. You're, you're, or they bring you everything backwards. They bring you the, 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 the main course first, and they bring you the salad. Then after that, they bring you dessert, and they bring you the soup. Uh, you, you can't eat like that. It doesn't follow an order. So God is telling Moshe, you have to place them, the laws, very easy, that like a table that's set, that what? That everybody will be able to understand the laws and uh, it'll be very, very clear. From here we learn, uh, there's a famous book 
that we have, which is the, the code of Jewish law. Does anybody know what the code of Jewish law is called? What is that book called? Very good. Shohan Aruch. What does Shohan Aruch mean? A set table. Shohan Aruch. A set table. Why? Because the law has to be like a set table. Everything has to be in order. And that's what we learned from this speaks perasha. Place it in front of them. Don't, don't give it to them in a puzzle form where they have to figure it out. It should be given over methodically, logically. Everybody understands exactly though, which is really uh, the job of the rabbi to try to simplify the things and explain it in a way where the student will understand. As she says, like a table that's set. And this is where we get the famous book called Shohan Aruch, which is our law book. Another very important law. These are the laws you should place in front of them. From here we learn that anytime a person has a case, a monetary case uh, between Jews, let's say. So you must bring the court case, you must bring the monetary case in front of them. Who's them? The Jewish court, the Bedin. From here that she comes along and tells us the law that we're not allowed to litigate in non-Jewish courts. Now, even though the non-Jewish court is following a law, even if they're following Torah law, Let's say you're in a country where it happens to be the secular court happens to follow in this case that you're judging or that you need uh, clarity on. They judge it like the Torah law. So you say, what's the difference? They're going to judge me the same way the Torah does. Still forbidden. And this is a, uh, a very, very big problem that people uh, don't realize the severity of. Right away, they have a case against their friend, which is okay. The, the fact that you have a case against your friend is not a problem. People get into arguments all the time monetarily. It's okay to get into a fight or an argument, a dispute. You just need to bring it to litigation. No problem on that. It's not a sin to have a monetary claim against your friend. It happens all day long. It should have been who was judging the people from day from morning to night. Problem is, where do you litigate? So the Torah says you must litigate in front of the hachamim that are going to give you Torah uh, conclusion. Now, I must say, in certain cases, if you have a, a heter from your rabbi or from the court to go to a secular court, that's another story. But the first step always has to be beddin. That's so we learned a lot from every word in this pasuk. Place it in front of them like a shohan aruch and nifnehem. Place it in front of the Jewish court and not the secular court. Okay, now we start to lose. In the event you're going to purchase a Jewish slave, okay? So now we're talking about in the olden days, there was a concept called a Jewish slave. Now, where are you going to purchase a Jewish slave? Amazon? Where, where, where do you get Jewish slaves from? Where, where do you buy a Jewish slave? So that she comes along and says, you're buying it from Betin. Now, why would Betin sell slaves? So the case is talking about where, let's say, he stole money and he doesn't have to pay back. So what happens? So Betin then steps in and sells the slave and that will allow him to, with the money that he sold for, to pay back, his, uh, to pay back the money that he stole. 
So that's the, if he has what to pay, of course he pays. But if he doesn't have what to pay, so he gets sold. So that's the, uh, that's the law. Now, the Torah says, how long does a Jewish slave get sold for? He cannot work for more than six years. It's a six-year term. In the seventh year, he goes out free. Which means, let's say he came in single. He wasn't married. So then he leaves uh, He leaves single. He, he goes in the way he came out. Uh, so Again, if he came in and he was not married to a lady, when I mean, he came in alone, so then he leaves also a single, and then she learns over here a very interesting law, that if he came into this slave uh, situation and he wasn't married, his master... Uh, cannot give him a lady to marry in order to bring uh, children. There's a certain situation where the master can actually give a lady to the slave to marry, to produce children. And those children become slaves. So basically, you know, the, the, his wife becomes a, a slave factory. She produces slaves. But again, if he comes in single, he does not get, uh, the master does not have that ability to offer him uh, another wife, the halakha says, in order to have uh, children. However, in Ba'al Ishahu, if, let's say, when he came in, he was married to a regular, you know, lady, uh, so his wife goes out with him. Now, the question is, what is his wife doing in the first place? I thought they sold him as a slave. What is his wife doing there? So that she says, what was she doing there in the first place that you have to tell the master, let her go out too? So that she says, from here we learn in the lesson that says that if a person buys himself a Jewish slave, he's obligated to support the whole family. Meaning somebody has to feed the slave. Well, you're obligated to feed the slave, you have to feed his wife, and you have to feed his children. So it's not like, uh, you know, today you have a maid, let's say. So you have a maid, okay, you, you pay her whatever you pay her, and you feed her. You're not obligated to pay for uh, a husband, you don't got to pay for our children, but that's not a Jewish slave. This is a Jewish slave, there's laws, meaning the slavery in, 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 in religion is not a, a slavery that we're used to hearing about, you know, uh, in the olden the days of this country that they used to, you know, abuse the slaves and take advantage. Actually, you're going to learn that the master has to treat the Jewish slave with white gloves. Here we're learning the first thing. If he comes in with a wife, the master has to pay for the wife's, uh, you know, needs and the children. <clears throat> now, now, if the master provides a wife for the slave, now, we learned that a master can provide this slave a wife. She's called a shifha, a maidservant. And this maidservant is actually a Kanaani. She's not Jewish. She converts partially. 
And what happens? She now goes with the slave and produces children. Those children are slaves. Oh. It's a, a new concept for many people over here. So therefore, it says, Im isha, if the master gives this slave a wife, lo banim and he has children, boys or girls, ha'isha biladeha, the maidservant that married him stays, he goes out, but his children have to stay. Have to stay. It's an amazing thing. No, we said that if he comes in alone, single, then the master cannot give him a wife. But if he comes in married, then the master can give him a wife. There's two wives. He has his natural wife, who's a Jewish wife. And then he has the shifcha kena'anit, the kena'ani wife that the master can provide, which is a service that now, this exactly, it's a slave factory. Every, every, every kid that's born now, he has an instant uh, slave for life. So they don't go out, which is an unbelievable thing. That means the slave goes out and he has to leave his children. Bottom line is he's his children. He had them from this uh, shifcha. Yeah, the, the master can force him to take this shifcha and have these uh, children. Now, somebody might ask over here, uh, what's the, what's the, where's the fairness over here that these are his children. Why do they stay behind? The Pasuk says, his new wife and the children, they remain to the master. And he goes out alone, meaning alone with his, with his wife. What would be the logic in that? So there's a beautiful thought that I once saw that says, that a person, this guy stole. He stole, that's why, he's, that's why he's a slave. He stole somebody's property. Now, we want to teach this slave a lesson. You know, you teach a person a lesson. You don't learn a lesson until it happens to you. You know, if you're a thief your whole life, you're not, you, you don't know how it feels when something's taken away from you. So therefore, the last thing they want to do to this slave is they want to rehabilitate him, that he should feel that something is taken away from him. So they keep his children. By keeping his children, they said, now you know how it feels when, when, when something you think belongs to you and, 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 and we're not letting you uh, uh, access it or we're, we're keeping it from you. So that already will teach him a lesson. Now he's on the other side. Now he, 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 he's not the one that took something, but he had something that was taken from him. And therefore it, uh, it gives him a you know, a Musa. Now, what happens next, Pasu? Let's say the Ebed says after six years, I have to eat Adoni. I like my master. I like my new wife. My children. I don't want to leave. I want to stay. Now, after six years, we said, he's free, go home. This guy says, I'm good. I want to stay. So the Pasuk says, So the master brings him, means to the bed dean. They have to go to the, to the court. And they bring him to the door, uh, which means uh, to, the, to the doorpost. And what does he do at the doorpost? 
They take his ear and they put it against the doorpost, his right ear, as she says, his lobe. And, um, and what do they do? They, they pierce it. Now, they don't put an earring in his ear like they do today, but they pierce his ear. Now, what's the, what's the logic? Why would they pierce his ear? We understand the guy doesn't want to leave. Okay. So they should tell him, okay, you want to stay a little longer? What's this concept of piercing his ear? So that she says, your ear that heard and had Sinai looked ignov. Torah says you're not allowed to steal. And you went and you stole anyway. Let, let that ear now become pierced because it's, it's, it's showing that you didn't hear good. Now, not only that, sometimes a person will sell himself into slavery, not because he stole. Willingly, he wants a job. Fred doesn't like slavery. So that if we pierce his ear, the Torah came along and says, you're supposed to be a slave of God. Why did you sell yourself to become a slave of a human? So they pierce his ear. Again, the ear that heard on Har Sinai that God said, you are my slaves. And instead you chose to sell yourself to be the slave of a human. So therefore, why would you, why would you purchase a master for yourself? You have a master already, it's God. So that's, um, that's a, a, a punishment. But that punishment of piercing his ear causes him to remain as a uh, as a slave. And how long does he remain? Post. Why the doorpost? So I heard a beautiful uh, explanation why the doorpost, which she, by the way, says it, but that's a fair question. Because when did we become the servants of God? And when did we accept God as our master? The night we left Egypt. And when was that? when we brought the Korban Pesach. And where did we bring the Korban Pesach? We took the blood and we sprinkled it on the doorposts. Remember we learned that? On the two sides yeah. of the doors and on the lintel on the top. So at that point, we became servants of God. And we left slavery. We were slaves of Paro. The moment we started to bring Korban Pesach, we left the bondage of Paro and we entered the servitude of God. So therefore, we go back to that doorpost and we say to the Abba, didn't you hear what happened that night? Why would you want to work for somebody else and be his slave? And therefore, it's a punishment. Uh, 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 you didn't hear good. You didn't get the message. So they pierce his ear at that point over there because we don't want people to be slaves. It's okay to work for somebody, but you, you're never a slave to anybody. Even your boss doesn't own you. But in this case over here, this guy now is selling himself into slavery willingly because he tells his master, I don't want to go. What do you, mean you don't want to go. Be free and go serve God. So therefore, they bring him back to the doorpost, which reminds him of what happened in Mitzrayim. And therefore, they pierce his ear. Now, how long has he become a slave for at this point? The first term was six years. After the piercing of the ear, it says, le'olam. Now, le'olam doesn't mean forever, although literally means forever, but that's why we have to consult with Rashi over here, and he says, until the Yovel, until the Jubilee year, 
Now, what's the Jubilee year? Every seven years we have Shemitah. This year happens to be a Shemitah year, where the land has to just grow fallow. And then after seven cycles of Shemitah, so that's the 49th year, the 50th year becomes the Jubilee year. In the 50th year of the Shemitah cycle, it's a year of freedom. All slaves go free in that year. If anybody ever went to uh, Philadelphia and you saw the the bell, the freedom, what do you call it, the freedom bell? And the the cracked bell, you know, the bell that's cracked over there. And if you look in the, uh, on English, I saw it. Uh, you saw it, okay. The Liberty Bell, exactly. Liberty Bell. Liberty Bell. Exactly. You can probably Google it, and you'll see it has a pasuk in English written on that bell. And the pasuk basically says that all slaves will go free during the Jubilee year, which is really based on what we're learning uh, tonight. They use that pasuk in order to elude the freedom of, uh, of slaves. Now, of course, that pasuk was actually written by Jewish slaves. But nonetheless, it's a concept of that the Jubilee year frees, uh, frees Abadim. And I want to tell you something, just so, just so you know, an interesting halakha. Many of you probably go to shul on Yom Kippur. I'm assuming that if you're on this, uh, come to this class, you also probably go to shul on Yom Kippur. Well, if you do, you'll notice that at the end of Yom Kippur, the last thing we do is we blow shofar. Now, pay attention. Nowhere in the Torah does it say to blow shofar on Yom Kippur. It says you have to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah. So what are we blowing the shofar on Kippur for? There's one time the Torah says to blow shofar on Yom Kippur. Only one time. And when is that? the shofar of the jubilee year, the shofar of the 50th year. And why are we blowing the shofar? Because that signals that slaves are now able to go free. So we blow the shofar on Kippur every year to commemorate the shofar that was blown during the jubilee year. Because in the olden days, once every 50 years, they blew shofar on Yom Kippur. Because that's when the slaves go free. Yom Kippur, of the 50th year. Right after the holiday is over, they blow the shofar. It's like an emancipation proclamation, that shofar. And then everybody goes back home. They can be with their families you know, for Sukkot. So that's the uh, story over here of the Ebed Evri, she says, until the uh, Yovel. All right, there you go. We had at least one, one law. Obviously, we're going to go much slower than these parashiyot because... You really have to give explanation just to basic uh, interpret of the laws, but it's a great, uh, great sechut for the, uh, for who we're learning for. Hayah, Sarah, Bat Simcha, that you should continue to have Bezat Hashem, Refuah and progress in the right direction. I mean, we continue our learning. All right, the learning Parashat Mishpatim. And we are up to Perechat Aleph, it's 21. We're up to Pasuk Zayin. And we have uh, 
We have this limud refuah shelema. Oh yeah. We have the limud refuah shelema chayas ara bat simcha. Elna lefanala. We talk she'an chole amu Yisrael amen. Okay, let's see. Bechi yimkod ish et bito leama. So now we're talking about a person again. In the olden days, they used to be able to sell their daughters as servants. We're talking about over here where she's a minor, uh, means less than uh, 12 years old. And uh, the Torah comes along and says, which means we're going to learn. Well, we learned yesterday that slaves actually go out after six years. We learned after six years, then they go free. We're going to learn about another type of slave that's called a, an indentured slave, which we didn't learn about yet. He goes out if the master knocks out his tooth or knocks out his eye. That's called shen be'ayu. But a maidservant, a Jewish girl that's sold as a slave, uh, she goes out uh, once she reaches uh, puberty, which means she brings signs of maturity, which is once she's already 12 years old, she automatically goes free, or if the Jubilee year comes first. So that's the... Uh, that's the program when it comes to Amma Ibriya. So the Torah comes along and says, Im asher lo vehevda, now the master has the right to marry her. But let's say he doesn't decide to marry her. means he doesn't decide to marry her. Because normally, when you buy a maidservant as a, you know, as a slave, the mitzvah is that the master should marry her. And therefore support her as a wife. Which means... That's the, that's the goal of this. We don't want to keep a Jewish girl a maidservant, rather her be married. Now, when a person gets married, the owner or the husband has to give her money or the father money. So the Gemara says that the money that he pays the father in order to get this girl as a slave, that money ultimately serves for the money of Kiddushin. So that money retroactively can work as the money of Kiddushin money. He doesn't have to re-give her money. That money was paid already. Retroactively, he could say, I want that money that I gave your father to be considered the money of the Kiddushin. Now she points out, you don't need a new Kiddushin. You can rely on the original money. But again, if he doesn't want to marry her, then already he has to set her free. Again, when does he set her free? 
at the time of uh, Yovel or when she reaches already the age of puberty, which is 12 years old. The Torah does say, however, He cannot sell her to somebody else. That means once she sold to the first person, there's no resale on the Jewish maidservant. The father cannot resell her and the master cannot resell her. Correct. Now, the master is allowed to marry this maidservant off to his son. Which is if the father wants, he can uh, marry him off to the son. Again, with permission of the father. Now, also the Torah says he doesn't need a new kiddushin. He can rely on the money that the father gave uh, or the father received at the time of the sale. So it's interesting, it's not the most romantic uh, kiddushin over here. The money was paid already by this master. He paid the father. He paid the father for the daughter. That money has a dual purpose. It could serve as money for the purchase of the daughter, the purchase, or it could serve as money of kiddushin. If the father or, or the master or his son decides to marry, this marriage is not called a regular marriage. It's called Yehud. Yud Ayin Vav Dalud. It's good to know these words here. Yehud. Yehud is the marriage between the master and the maidservant that he bought from this, uh, you know, from this, uh, from this father. So, again, these are laws that sound very strange to us, obviously, because, you know, we don't have, uh, we don't have any of this over here today, but nonetheless, this is how it was in the old days. Now the Torah comes along and says, uh, so if the son or the master decides to marry her, he must treat her like a regular Jewish lady. Now, from here we learn, so every, anybody ever went to a ketubah ceremony, here's where they learn the three obligations that a man is obligated to his wife. One of the three obligations is called she'er, kisut, ve'ona. What is she'er, kisut, ve'ona? So she'er means a man does not have an option to marry a lady and then not feed her or to give her money for food. That's not just being nice. That's a biblical responsibility. If a husband comes along and he says, I don't want, I'm not feeding you, go feed yourself. So he's in contempt of a Torah law. It's not just that he's a deadbeat husband, he's a deadbeat Jew because the Torah demands that a husband provide money for the sustenance, the food sustenance of the, of the wife. So that's called mezonot. And she, uh, that's called she'era. And then kisuta. Kisuta literally means lechasot, to cover her. Cover her with what? Clothes. So there's the obligation that a husband, a Jewish husband has a responsibility 
to make sure that the wife is clothed. And then the third is onata. Onata is, Chabaruch used to say it in a nice way, time. Time, in this case, doesn't mean just, you know, time uh, on the park bench. Over here, the time means intimacy. So it's she'era, kisuta, ve'onata. So that's what the Torah says. Imacheret yikahlo. She'era, kisuta, ve'onata lo yigra. That means, let's say the master decides to marry this girl. It's not a regular marriage. It's called yi'ud. Where's the money of the marriage? He gave it to the father already. Since she's a minor, the father gets the money. In the olden days, I'll explain it to you. When you had a father and he wants to marry off his daughter, the father gets the ring. You don't give it to the, to the girl. Today we give it to the girl because most of the times under the chupad, the girl already is an adult. But in the olden days, if you're marrying off your nine-year-old girl, the father would get the, with the money. He would get the, uh, the ring or the coin. So the Torah is telling us that even if the master decides to take this girl, and this marriage, again, is called the Yehud marriage, and now he decides to take a second wife, he cannot diminish his husband responsibilities to the maidservant. He can't just say, well, now I'm taking a second wife, therefore she's my responsibility. Fine, she's also your responsibility, but he must not neglect the maidservant, and it's not the maidservant anymore, it's his wife. And therefore, we must provide her she'era kesuta ve'onata. Okay. And now the Torah says, ve'im shilosh ele lo ya'asela, which means, if he doesn't decide to marry her, or he doesn't marry her off to his son. So then the Torah says, Ultimately, she goes out. She goes out once she becomes the age of puberty that we said. Uh, and that's it. She doesn't stay any longer than that. So either she leaves at the Jubilee year, like we learned, or if she brings signs of puberty before that, she leaves at that point as well. Fine. Now we discuss another case. Another case now is not such a pleasant case, but these are some of the laws that the Torah talks about. Makeish vamet motyumat. Okay, if a person is makeh, he he hits, he attacks a person. Makeish, he hit him. Vamet, and he causes him to die. Motyumat. So the Torah comes along and says that there's a death penalty. And what is the uh, what is the death penalty? So the Torah comes along and says Rashi comes along and says Okay, it doesn't matter if he kills a minor or he kills a 
a lady. Bottom line, in all these cases, he'll be put to death. And the Torah will tell us what the punishment is. Let's say he didn't have intention. He didn't have intention to kill. But a mistake happened. Uh, so then already, God says you have to run to a certain place. And that place is somebody, somebody mistake was not premeditated. Now, the she over here has a very interesting case. Why would it happen that somebody kills somebody unintentionally? He made a mistake. Why would Hashem do that? So, David Melech says that everything is is justice in the eyes of God. And he says a story. What's the story? He says like this, let's say you have two people. One killed somebody by mistake. Let's say Reuven. Reuven by mistake killed somebody. He wasn't careful. And Shimon, another guy, killed somebody on purpose. So you have two guys. One is an accidental murderer, and one is an intentional murderer. Now, there was no witnesses on either case. So the guy who killed unintentionally, that's it, nobody saw him, he went home, didn't tell anybody. And the guy who killed on purpose, also, there was no witnesses, he thought he got away with it. Now, the person who killed intentionally should have been put to death. And the person who killed city of refuge, but they got away with it. This is where the saying comes from, got away with murder. What does HaKadosh Baruch Hu do? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the ultimate judge. He brings them both, this guy Reuven and Shimon to a hotel. And the one that killed Bimezid, the one that killed on purpose, is sitting in the lobby of the hotel under a ladder. And what happens? The guy that killed by mistake unintentionally is climbing the ladder. He wants to get a book from the library in the, in the hotel lobby. And what happens? He falls. And he falls in the on the intentional murderer. Well, what's happening to him? He dies. So you see, he got his justice. Hashem will make it that the intentional murderer will get killed. And the one that fell off the ladder, well, he killed them unintentionally. But now they're in the middle of the hotel, there's witnesses. And therefore, he'll have to end up going to the city of refuge. So therefore, everybody ends up getting their, their justice. You can't escape the justice of God. So that's what when you see sometimes, why did that guy kill that guy by mistake? Why did it happen through him? Many agents God could use in order to bring justice. Why did he bring it? To that guy that fell off the ladder. Well, for good reason, because that guy deserved a punishment beforehand. So therefore, God brings them both to a certain place in order that they'll meet out. Now the passage is, somebody intentionally comes to kill his friend, 
Ne'im mizbechi tekahenu lamut. Now this is talking about over here. If you have over here, even a doctor who's coming to help somebody, but ultimately he was negligent. Or let's say the, 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 the fellow that works for the court that gives lashes. Let's say he wasn't careful and he gave an extra lash. Or even a father that's beating up his son. Or a rabbi, a teacher that's beating up the students. So all these cases over here, a rabbi that's beating up a student is not intentional. The father that's beating up the kid is not intentional. The doctor, unless it's malpractice, is not intentional. So we're talking about not those cases, because that's shogeg. We're talking about a guy that actually intends to kill. So the pasuk says, even if he's a kohen, and he's in the Beit HaMikdash, and he wants to serve, you grab him, there's, there's, no, there's no asylum. You can't seek asylum in the temple. So therefore, even if he's at the Mizbeach, the Torah says, you bring him down. And they take him to die. Because nobody has immunity. Even if you're a Kohen and you're killed intentionally, you don't have your status. And therefore, they bring him down from the Mizbeach and they put him to death. Last one for tonight. Now, over here, it's a strict one. If a person causes a wound to his parents, a wound means you cause them to bleed, or black and blue. The mother or the father, Torah says there's a death penalty. Death by strangulation. So that's a it's a very, very important halakha that you're going to come along and say, who beats up their parents? Well, it's a big question if, let's say, a parent needs a shot, an injection. So the hakamim say that it's better that the child does not give the injection unless there's nobody else to do it. Because what happens when, the, when you give the injection? You cause the, your father or mother to bleed. And that's according to the Torah. If you do that to your parent, in a normal case, it's death penalty. Okay, in this case, we know you're not doing it to hurt the parent. You're doing it in order to give him or her insulin or whatever it may be. But nonetheless, if somebody else can do it, Halakha says, better that somebody else uh, take care of that. Vigonev ish umcharo. Over here, it's talking about if a person kidnaps somebody, umkharoni sells him, and they catch him, they caught him that, he stole somebody, he's trafficking, and then he sold them, so motumat, the punishment of kidnapping and selling is punishable by death by strangulation. So that's the, uh, that's that case over there. If somebody curses his parents, God forbid, also 
put to death. Now, in this case, we have cursing the mother and the father. It's the father or the mother. It doesn't have to be both. Motumat, serious punishment here. Death by stoning. That's a very, very strong punishment. Now, obviously, we're talking about over here where he curses the parents and his witnesses that warn him not to do it. He does it intentionally. It's interesting. The punishment of cursing is even more severe than the punishment of causing a blemish. Causing a blemish, we learned, the punishment is chenik. Chenik is strangulation. But for cursing, which you didn't even put your finger on your father or mother, just verbal, it's more severe. It's punished by stoning, which is more severe than strangulation. Lesson to be learned, that what they told you in school was wrong. When they told you in school, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, is worse, is wrong. Because when the person gets hit by sticks and stones, the body heals. But when a person gets verbally abused, so those wounds don't get healed that fast. And you see from here, if somebody wounds his father or mother, they get a lower and less severe punishment than if somebody cursed. It seems that the verbal curse is more disrespectful and painful even than the, uh, than the wound itself. So words definitely harm. Nothing to talk about that. All right. Again, it's not not too much stories here. At least we're getting some of the uh, some of the laws that uh, that the Torah talks about. And nonetheless, we're learning it. Pay attention, Abotan. We're learning these pesukim for the Fuah Shirema Hayasara Batsimcha, and we're uh, using the Perush of Rashi in order to understand uh, these pesukim. If you're following inside chapter twenty-one, and we're at pasuk Yudchet. The pasuk over here says, "Vechiyirivun Anashi." A situation where we have two people that are fighting. And the Vehika uh, Ishitrehu. And one uh, fellow hits his friend, Be'even, either with a rock or Be'igrof, or with a fist. Veloyamut. He didn't kill him. He damaged him. And as a result, the victim fell to his bed. She comes along and tells that the main bush, the main novelty that this parasha is coming to teach us is not that you have to pay for damages. That we know already when you damage somebody. Obviously, you have to make 
compensation. But the Torah is going to introduce two new payments that we didn't talk about till now. And those two payments are called Shevet and Ripui. Shevet means from the word Shabbat, which means to rest. When a person is uh, damaged and he falls to his bed, he can't go to work. So therefore you have to compensate him <clears throat> for his work. How much would he be would he be getting paid? I think it has to be called that in America workers' compensation. So that's one of the damages you have to pay. And also the Torah is going to tell us a second form of compensation that you have to make, and that's ripui. Ripui is medical. You have to pay for the victim's medical bills, whatever it costs to go to the doctors and the different medicines that he might need. So these are the main two payments that we're going to focus on in this story over here that she says. We're going to focus on Shevet, that's workers' comp, and Ripui is for uh, medicines, doctor's bills. Now that she comes along and says, it's a type of damage that incapacitates him. Incapacitated meaning he can't go to work. If later on he gets up and he's able to walk outside again, on his own accord, that's the way that she says, well, if that's the case, then the one that damaged is innocent. Now, what does it mean he's innocent? He's not innocent from paying, but he's innocent from the death penalty. Because if this fellow actually dies from his wounds, so then this fellow committed murder. So that she comes along and says, a big fetush over here, that uh, the one that damaged, uh, the one that hit his friend, they put him in prison in the meantime. We have to see what's going to happen with the guy that he beat up. If he ultimately dies, so now we're going to have to kill the, uh, the perpetrator. So they don't let him just go free after he beats up his friend. Now, his status is pending based on what happens to the victim. So we wait to see if he can recover. So the Pasuk says, if the victim who got beat up he gets out of his bed on his own accord and he can go back to living, then the perpetrator is innocent. Innocent from a death penalty, but not innocent from pain. Now, if indeed the victim would die, then you're right. We would take this fellow that's in a holding pen, is in a prison cell, and they would put him to death. Now, if he comes back to life again, this fellow comes back to his, you know, his ability to go to go back to work, 
רק שבתו ייתן ורפו ירפא. So two things it says over here. Number one, רק שבתו. What does שבתו mean? שבתו means you must pay uh, him workers' compensation. However much money he lost as a result of him being incapacitated out of work. Now, Rashi over here tells us something that's very significant, and we're going to have to explain it to you. How do you calculate workers' comp? How do you calculate how much the guy deserves? So Rashi says something very interesting here. You calculate how much a, a watchman makes, which is a, not such an expensive job, a watchman who's watching kishu'in, uh, cucumbers. Let's say a guy has a cucumber field or a squash field, and you need somebody to sit at the, uh, at the gate of the field to watch it, to protect it. That's called the shomer kishu'in. A watchman of a field. Let's say the guy makes, uh, I don't know, $7 an hour. So if we have to pay the guy $7 an hour for however many days, he's out of work. Now, many of you are going to ask a question. What are you talking about? Why would you pay him such a menial job? Why don't you pay him for whatever job he was doing? Which means uh, if he was a pitcher for the New York Yankees, and he gets paid millions of dollars uh, a week. So why don't you pay him? Why don't you pay him for that? Where did they get this uh, calculation? So that she comes along and says, because you have to remember, there's other monetary compensations that uh, the perpetrator must pay. One of them is called Nezik. Explain to you. Let's say he damaged his arm. Now the guy can't use his arm anymore. So you have to pay for his arm. You have to pay for that. How do you pay for somebody's arm? How much is an arm worth? So that she reminds us that you sell the person or you evaluate how much he could be sold for if he had this arm. And now that he doesn't have it, how much is the the price fluctuation. So obviously, exactly, he depreciated on the slave market. How much would you pay for a person that has an arm like this? And how much does he depreciate now that he doesn't have it? And you have to pay him that difference. So he's getting paid for the actual limb that was lost. But even if he lost the limb, he still could go to work. He could be working, sitting in a field and be a watchman. So you have to pay him a separate payment. How much would he be able to work now in his new situation as a watchman? Because again, he's getting compensated for the arm that he lost or the leg that he lost. That's a separate payment. We're not going to pay him twice for the arm. So therefore, there's what's called nezek. That's the actual damage itself. How much he depreciated as a person which would be sold as a result of this damage that he has. And then he also has to be compensated for 
the amount of time that he was out of work, but he gets paid now a menial job because now at least he could, at least even when he gets better, he can still do a menial job. So you have to pay him for that bitul, uh, uh, for that cessation of work that he suffered and incurred during his uh, debilitation. That's um, that's Rashi's commentary. Lastly, that she says on this, Virapo Yirape. Yirapo Yirape, as she says, yeah, he has to pay the doctor's bill. And that's uh, the Torah is teaching us that even if, let's say, the perpetrator happens to be a doctor, so he comes along and says, I don't want to pay you, I'm a doctor, I'll cure you myself. Which is ironic. He's the guy that did the damage, and now all of a sudden he's going to be the uh, the doctor. But nonetheless, the victim is able to say, "I don't want your cure. Just give me the money, and I'll go to my own doctor." So that's the way the uh, the mefarshim understand it. That uh, he doesn't have to accept the yeah. exactly. He doesn't have to accept the services of the uh, of the perpetrator. Uh, he can actually just ask for the money and he takes that money and go to the doctor that he wishes. Now we have a, another case that has to be discussed. And that is, In the olden days, we learned a few nights ago, people were able to own slaves. Now, there's two types of slaves. One type of slave is the Jewish slave. He's the Ebed Ivri. We told him he is, and then, you know, you can give him a wife, and then uh, uh, after six years, you send him free. If he doesn't want to go free, you put his ear by the doorpost, and you pierce it, and then he goes out in the Jubilee year. That we learned. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about What's called an Ebed Kena'ani. An Ebed Kena'ani is a non Jewish slave. Now, a non Jewish slave has uh, different, different laws. He actually remains uh, a slave forever. He does not go out free. The Ebed Kena'ani is actually like property, which remains in the family forever. Even, let's say, when the owner dies, the children inherit the slave, just like they would inherit a house or a piece of real estate. So now we're going to discuss different situations of how the Ebed Kena'ani might go free. So it says, let's say the owner of this Ebed Kena'ani, he hits the slave. Bashebet. Bashebet means with a, with a stick. So it says over here, O et amato bashevet, umeta hatyado. Aha. So he hit him so hard that he killed him. We're talking about over here where he dealt him a blow that's possible to kill. We're not talking about over here where, you know, he hit him in the back and almost the guy croaks over and died. You know, sometimes you pat somebody in the back, or some, 
that's not that's not a a a a a a makah. That's not a a hit that's worthy to kill. That's an accident. But we're talking about over here where he actually used the force and the blow enough in order to kill him. And guess what? It killed him. So the pasuk says, "Nakom yinakim." There is going to be revenge on the owner that killed the Ebed Kenani. And the Torah says his death is death by the sword. That's one of the four punishments of Bet-Din. Death by the sword. Which is a beautiful thing. What do I mean beautiful thing? But we nobody should think, well, he's only an Ebed, he's only a slave. Hey, he killed him, big deal. Like they did in the South, they used to kill the slaves. And there was no... Uh, Recourse. Torah says no. Even though he's not a, not a Jewish slave, if you kill him, there's going to be revenge, and the revenge is death penalty. Ah, im yom But after a few days, if he gets up, so the Torah comes along and says. Lo you come. There's no punishment. Because bottom line doesn't have to make a compensation because it's his asset. The only time he has to get punished is if he kills the Evid Kanani. But if the Evid Kanani doesn't die, he just gets you know damaged a little. So when he gets better. It gets better. You don't have to pay anything. You're paying yourself because you own the asset. Now, what does it mean if he gets better a day or two later? What does it mean a day or two? So that she over here says, a fiducia. So he says like this. The Pasuk is coming along to say that in order to be exempt, the, the master from, from death, he has to live at least 24 hours, which is a full day, after the, after the blow. Which means... If he lived for 24 hours after the blow, then we could assume that he didn't die because of the blow. He died of complications that happened after. Listen, a, a master is allowed to hit his slave. That the Torah does allow in order to motivate him to do work. So therefore, if he dies after 24 hours, He's off the hook. But that's only a slave. If a person hits a regular person, like we just learned, a free man, and he dies even two days later, three days later, or a week later, as a result of the blow, he's guilty. So there's basically a big difference here between hitting a free man and hitting a slave. 
if you're the free man, doesn't matter when he dies from the blow, the perpetrator is always going to be guilty. But when it comes to Ebed Kana'ani, it's only a 24-hour window. After 24 hours, if he survives and then subsequently dies, the owner is off the hook. And that's what it means. So, so basically, you could have a it's it's not it's not a day because you could have, for example, uh, somebody hits his slave. Let's say sunset is six o'clock. So somebody hits his slave at five fifty nine on uh, on Monday. So therefore, once six o'clock comes, it's a new day. So now already, it's two days. Let's say he dies now in the morning of Tuesday. So even though he lived for two days, because part of Monday and part of Tuesday, it's not complete days, so that is considered dying within 24 hours, even though it's two days. So it has to be a 24-hour interval, a full day. We don't count days necessarily, we count hours. So even though technically on the calendar, you say, well, listen, he got hit on Monday and he's still alive on Tuesday. It's already two days passed. No, but it's not 24 hours. So therefore, the Torah comes along and says, once 24 hours passes, so then already the master Gets off the hook. Now, why are we being more lenient by an Evit Kanani in the punishment of the master? Because it's 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 normal to hit slaves. The Torah is telling you he's allowed to hit a slave. You have to rebuke him. You have to keep him in line. So the Torah does give some leeway in the punishment of the of the Adon. Finally, the Torah comes along and says. Let's to this case. You have two guys fighting. Uven and Shimon are fighting. And by mistake, they throw a punch unintentionally. They were trying to fight each other. But unintentionally, they throw a punch and it hits a lady. And the lady was pregnant. And they hit her. And what happens is... She had a miscarriage. That's exactly correct. She had a miscarriage. Now, thank God nothing happened to the lady. The person There was no damage, meaning to the lady herself, but she lost her babies, God forbid. So now the Torah is going to tell us there is damage that have to be paid for miscarriage. There's a value of that. Anoshia Anesh, the perpetrator again will be punished. The husband is able to take the perpetrator to court and he has to pay the value of the children, of these of the of the embryos, of the, of the babies. What is the value? So, so Rashi comes along and tells us. The calculation. How much a person would pay uh, for a maidservant that's pregnant? 
Obviously, a pregnant maid service is worth more. Why is a pregnant maid service, a pregnant maid servant worth more on the market? <laughs> because she's going to give birth and you have another slave right there. So, so therefore, they measure how much this maid or this girl would be sold on the slave market not pregnant and how much would she be sold pregnant and they have to pay the difference because that's what you depreciated her. Understand the point? When a lady's pregnant on the slave market, it's a bigger value because you're getting two for one. When that kid gives birth, when that kid gets born, one day I'll be a slave. So therefore the Torah is coming along to say, that's the way you make the calculation for uh, these children or these, this child that God forbid died in this accident. You, you measure the lady's depreciation of how much she now is going to be sold uh, without any children in her stomach, as opposed to what she would be sold when she was. And the Pasuk says, that payment is done through judges. God forbid, more serious, this case, where actually there's an ason. Ason means something happens to the lady. The lady died. Again, they were punching them, each other, and all of a sudden, they damaged the lady. So the Pasuk says, now, literally, it means you pay a soul for a soul. Now, some say an actual nefesh, which means they have to kill the perpetrator, which is a big hadush to say you're going to kill the person. There's an opinion that says you kill him. Why is it a hadush? Because he didn't intend to really hit this lady. You know, it's, you, you can't call this premeditated murder. This guy did not wake up in the morning with intention to kill this lady. It's not premeditated. His intention was to punch Reuven in the face. And instead he missed and he punched the lady and she died. One opinion in the Talmud says, soul for a soul, doesn't matter. Even though it wasn't premeditated, you killed her, and therefore, but some want to learn that when it says nefesh tahat nefesh, it doesn't mean that you actually kill the person, but you make him pay money. It's a monetary compensation. And again, logic being that when you intend to hit one person, and you ended up killing somebody else, you can't call that premeditated, and therefore you can't put somebody to death in that situation. And therefore the punishment is... So that's a very important to remember that when it says nefesh ta'at nefesh, soul for a soul, it doesn't mean actually a soul for a soul that we kill him. What does it mean that he has to pay money. Finally, last pesukim, ayin tahat ayin, which literally means eye for an eye, shen tahat shen, tooth for a tooth, yad tahat yad, 
hand for a hand, regel tahat, regel, leg for a leg. Now, do not make a mistake over here. These pisukim sound like what it's saying is eye for an eye, but sounds like if he knocked out her eye, they knock out his eye. If he knocked out her tooth, so we knock out his tooth. And if her hand was cut, so we cut his hand. God forbid, that's not what the Torah means. There was a certain uh, code, if you remember, we learned it in school, the Code of Hammurabi. Remember that? Code of Hammurabi? Code of Hammurabi said, literally, eye for an eye. That was their justice system. You gouge somebody's eye out, they do it to you. You cut somebody's hand off, they do it to you. The Torah doesn't believe in that. Oh, so what does it mean over here, an eye for an eye? So it means okay. if let's say, right, let's say you blinded somebody's eye, so you have to pay the value. It's all monetary, which means again, how much would it be sold as a slave with two eyes? And now how much would it be sold as a slave with one eye? So obviously he depreciated. So he has to pay the depreciation. And the same thing when it comes to all the the different payments. Kiviyah tahat kiviyah, petsa tahat, petsa habura tahat habura. Kiviyah means a burn, which means he burnt his friend. What type of friend this is? But he burnt his friend. He put a coal on him or something like that which means in this case over here, his value doesn't go down. You just cause your friend pain. Oh, now we're talking about something else. Till now we're talking about where you cause your friend a physical change in his body. Lost an eye, lost a hand, lost a leg. Now you took a coal and you just, you singed him. But his value doesn't go down. He's perfectly well. You just caused him sorrow. So the Torah introduces over here that a person has to make a compensation on that as well. For example, let's say that she gives an example. You singed him on his fingernail. So it doesn't cause any physical damage to his body. His hand's still 100%. Just that when the heat penetrated his fingernail, it caused him a lot of pain. So the Torah introduces that you have to pay for pain. So that's called sa'ah. So tonight we learned about a few payments that have to be made for damages. One we learned is what? Nezik. You have to pay for the actual damage of the limb if there was a limb that was lost. And that's done through depreciation. And we learned also workers' comp. The fact that he's out of work now, you have to pay him. And we learned you pay also for doctor's bills. And now we're learning that in the case where you cause the person pain, so you have to pay for pain, which is called tsa'ar. Now, how would you measure tsa'ar? Can anybody tell me, if you're, a, if you're a judge and somebody comes into the court and says, this guy took a coal and he burnt my, my nail and it was boiling hot, I was in a lot of pain. I was screaming, yelling, crying. I want to be compensated. If you're a judge, how do you measure 
compensation for pain. How is pain uh, uh, into money? Any judges out there? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a tricky question. So that she comes along and says, It can't work. No, he can work. He can work. Oh, he's not in pain. Okay. Don't, don't mix up the cases. The, all the guy now is claiming he wants money for pain. He caused me pain. He didn't miss any work. He went to work that day. That's a separate item. Okay. So then as she comes along and says that we calculate the following. How much would a person pay in order to get this pain? What does that mean over there? Which means... The way that she says it over here, which is, which is a strange thing because nobody would pay anything. It's more logical to say, how much would a person pay not to do this pain to him? Which means, let's say somebody's coming along and saying, I'm going to burn your, uh, 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 your nail. Unless you pay me a certain amount of money. So how much would a person be willing to pay to be saved from such a pain? So let's say, so I'll give you $100, don't do it. Okay, so that's the money, 100 bucks. But Ashi's language actually is, He looks at it in the positive way. How much is a person willing to be compensated? If I give you $100, will you let me burn you? Nah, that's not enough. How about 200 No, I'll give you 1000 bucks. you let me burn you? 1000 bucks. I'll take the pain. So therefore, that's the way you calculate in the in that she's uh, understanding. Okay, Rabotai. We'll stop over here. Went overboard tonight. But uh, these are complicated cases. We try to say it slowly. But just to give you a basic overview of uh, of what's going on. We'll try to continue this present the sham tomorrow night. We're continuing the Perashah Mishpatim. Again, if anybody that logged on to hear stories, <clears throat> you're on the wrong chat because the story part of the Torah has officially ended. We're not in the narrative part, we're in the legislative part. So if uh, you don't like laws, so this is not the class for you. But the Torah is a, a, a book of laws. So eventually we're going to have to hit the uh, mitzvot. So... We'll just continue tonight where we left off. Again, we learned these uh, shiurim. And we're up to chapter 21 and Pasuk 26. So this is talking about over here where a person has an avid, a slave. Now we learned already there's two types of slaves. The slave we're talking about tonight is called the avid kena'ani. Now, avid kena'ani, if let's say uh, the master hits the avid he gives him a, a hit. 
and he knocks out his eye. So the Torah comes along and says that if he knocks his eye out, automatically he goes free. And the next pasuk says, "V'im shen avdo, or shen amato yapir, or he knocks out one of his tooth, one of his teeth, punched him in the mouth, and the tooth came out of the ebed, or the maidservant." So we learn two laws over here. That one of the ways an Evid Kanani goes free is if the master hits him. He doesn't have to kill him, but if he hits him enough to knock his eye out or to knock his tooth out. Now that she actually brings down that even if he knocks out or breaks one of the 24 main limbs in the body, which are the fingers of the hands and the legs. So that's already 20. 10 fingers on the hands, 10 fingers on the legs. If he breaks one of them or knocks it off. That's the two ears. Is the nose. And that's the... Uh, the private part. So if he causes them a damage in any of those uh, areas, so then already he goes out free. So then if that's the case, why does the Torah mention eye and tooth? It's, it's much more than the eye and the tooth. So that she comes along and says that it's coming to tell us a hidush. If the Torah just would have said eye and would not have said tooth, I would have said maybe organs only that he was born with. A person's born with his eyes, but you're not born with teeth. So I might have thought only items that you're born with. That's what the Torah has to come along and say, teeth. Now, if the Torah would have said only teeth, and when I never said eyes, I would have said even a baby tooth, a person would be guilty and the slave would go free. So that's why it says I to come and tell me only on permanent items that do not grow back, which means a permanent tooth. So each one of these items teaches me uh, about what type of limb or organ has to be knocked out. The eye means it has to be uh, something that's permanent. And the tooth, uh, which means the, 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 the reason why it says eye is to come and tell me that uh, it has to be something that is permanent. So therefore a baby tooth would not be hayab. And the, the reason why it says tooth, that even though he wasn't born with it, He's still going to be uh, obligated, the master, that is, if he knocks it out. Fine. So that's the law of Evid Kena'ani. Now, I will tell you what the Gemara says. The Gemara says if a slave goes out free just on one limb that got damaged, so too when a person, God forbid, gets affliction from God, 
it'll relieve him from all the punishments in the next world as well. He will be free. And it's if just a knocking out a tooth allows the Ebed Kenani to go free. So Yisurim, which sometimes afflict a person's whole body, certainly will cause a person to go free in the next world. That's why, if you remember your grandmother, whenever something bad happened, they say kapara. What does it mean kapara? It's kapara. That means it doesn't go for nothing. Pays a bill. It exonerates a person from a more severe punishment. So that's what they learned from this story over here. Now we get to another law of axes goring each other. An ox gores, the oxes have horns. They gored a lady or a man, vamit. And it was a deadly goring. It's like you have in, uh, in Spain, in the, uh, yeah, in the, in the rodeo over there, in Seville, they have the, uh, the bullfights. And they have the matador. And he tries to escape the uh, attack of the bull. We're talking about over here with a bull. And he killed him. What's the law? You must put the bull to death. Death by stoning, which is a severe death. That animal rights activists are not going to be too happy about that. But the Torah says, this is a dangerous ox. It killed somebody. Even if it only killed one time, it's more than enough. Therefore, the animal must be put to death. And the Torah says, you're not allowed to eat its flesh, its meat. And the guy will come along and say, well, let me eat the meat at least. Well, Rashi is bothered. You don't have to tell me that you can't eat the meat because you're stoning it to death. Once you stone an animal to death, the meat's not kosher because she didn't make the proper shechita. So why does it have to say you stone the animal and you can't eat its meat? Isn't it obvious if it's stoned, the meat isn't kosher, you didn't do a proper shechita? That's Rashi's question. So Rashi comes along and says that let's say the Bedin ruled to stone the animal and you went nonetheless and you slaughtered it. You didn't stone it, you slaughtered it. Still the Torah comes along and says the meat is forbidden. And not only that, but you're not even allowed to have pleasure or derive any benefit from this animal. Meaning, you might come along and say, okay, we stoned it. Now let me sell the hide. The hide costs money. Make a, you know, a leather coat, a baseball glove. No, the Torah says, Ba'al ashor naki. Naki means clean, meaning you're cleaned out. The owner of the ox is clean. Like we say, you know, in the, in the vernacular, they clean them out. Clean them out meaning it's a, it's a washout. So therefore, he gets no benefit from the dead ox. Now let's talk about another case. Next person. And then we're going to test you on all the laws that we learned tonight. Mm-hmm. Then we'll see 
if there's any uh, comprehension. Now let's say this is an ox that gores, but already it is prone to gore. It has gored three times. Also, therefore, this is an ox that's, uh, its nature is to gore. And they warned the master, they warned the owner. And nonetheless, it killed again. That she points out, not only if it's killed by goring, even if it's killed by biting, or it's killed by pushing, or killed by kicking. So there, the Torah comes along and says that if it happened three times, now you're going to ask me, how could it happen three times? I thought after the first time, they're supposed to stone the animal. Well, they didn't get a chance to stone the animal yet, and they did it two more times. So now there's an amazing law here. First of all, the Torah says, you start to stone the animal. But the owner now of the animal is put to death. Now, we never kill a person because his animal killed. So what does it mean when it says vehumat? So that she says it's called mita bideh shamayi. Heaven will take care of this guy. It's a, it's a penalty from heaven. Because he's responsible, after all, his animal did cause a death. So in shamayim, they'll take care of him. It's called death by heaven. So we're not going to kill him, but in Shemaim, they'll take care of him. Now, furthermore, he has to pay compensation for the dead, for the dead man. He has to pay the relatives. In Kofit, you shot Alav. The bed team will put Kofit on him. Kofit is the money. And he has to pay the Pidyon. Now, there's a big mahloket how to calculate the pidyon money. So I'm going to tell it to you. It's a machloket between the two rabbis, Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Akiva. One rabbi says, Rabbi Ishmael, that you evaluate the person that the animal damaged. How much was he worth? He killed the guy. How much was he worth? How old was he? How much could they have sold him for? And that's what the owner of the animal has to pay the relatives. Some say, no. Rabbi Akiva says he has to pay his own worth, what the owner of the animal is worth, because it's kapara for him. So therefore, since it's a redemption for him, he has to pay his worth to the family. So that's the mahloket. Who do you calculate the monetary payment to the relatives? Is it against the victim, how much he is worth, or is it against the owner of the animal, how much he is worth? Now, even if the animal kills a ben or a bat, which means minors, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't think that if an animal gored a minor, that we're going to treat it any less. If, let's say, the ebed gored an ebed kena'ani, one of these slaves, so then the Torah says, So he has to pay 
30 shekel. It's a set fee. Whether the slave is worth a thousand or whether he's worth one. The Torah puts a fixed price. He has to pay 30 shekel to the owner. And the Pasuk says, the short will be put to death again by stone. Now let's review just the laws that we learned here tonight because we learned a few halachot. I'm going to ask the question and let's see if our members are able to give the proper answer based on what we learned in Perush Rashi. You'll scream out the answers. Again, we have, I guess, about 40 people online. I'm sure out of the 40, somebody's going to scream the right answer. And therefore, we'll give everybody the credit. The question is like this. Answer the question. I'll give multiple choice. You have an owner of an Ebed Kena'ani. And we learned yesterday, an Ebed Kena'ani, he works for the family forever. Not like the Ebed Devri that goes out after six years. Ebed Kena'ani is the property. He's an asset. It's like real estate. Even when the owner dies, he inherits it to his, or bequeaths it to his children. Good. But tonight we learned that there's a certain way that an Ebed Kena'ani can go free. What is that way? If he gets hit in the eye or the tooth. Excellent, excellent. The eye or the tooth. Now, is there any other limb besides the eye and the tooth that would free the Ebed? The 24. Very good. The 24 limbs that, as she said, which are the fingers, the ears, the nose, and the other part. So therefore you have all those cases, the Ebed automatically goes free. Now here's the trick question. Let's see if our members can get it. Let's say he has a baby Ebed, because by the way, this Ebed has children. The children of an Ebed are an Ebed. So now he has a, a two-year-old Ebed, and the master gets angry at him, and he punches him in the tooth. And the baby tooth of the Ebed, little baby Ebed, fell out. Does the baby Ebed go free on a baby tooth? Yes. Yes. No. Only permanent. Only no. permanent is the right answer. Uh, only, permanent. only permanent. Yeah, that's the hadush that we said. Just like the eye is permanent, so too the tooth has to be permanent. Could we clarify that? Because if that case happens tomorrow, somebody knocks out the baby tooth of an Ebed Kena'ani, they have to exactly how to rule it. Cases are not so common, but anyway, nonetheless. All right, now let's go to the next case. An ox gored and killed a man or a lady. What do we do to the ox? Tequila. Tequila is correct. And the question is, depends. is what is that? It depends one time or three times. No. The rule is that even if he kills one time, kills, kills, not damages, kills. Even if he kills once, the punishment is put the animal to death. We don't want to wait till he kills somebody else. He's a dangerous animal. <laughs> the question the question we have over here is can you benefit from the meat of the animal 
No, no. Absolutely not. You are correct. Very good. Now, what happens if this animal, this ox that we're talking about, it actually gored and killed three times? So we learned already that you have to put the animal to death. So the animal gets stony. But what do we do to the owner? He He has to pay. Penalty. Penalty. He has to pay. Hashem will punish him. The value. Both are correct. Hashem will punish him. That's absolutely correct. That's called mitabi de shamayim. And he has to pay. Now, the question is, what does he have to pay? How do you calculate the payment? The value of the person. Oh, the person. Either Mara. the one who Mara gets get killed. What do you mean? Which person? We know that trick. The person. Which person? Either the one who get killed or the or the his, Vice his or versa. own. The exactly person. what she says. Yes, that is correct. The Mahlokan is a Bishmember the Biakiva. It's either the value of the one that got killed or the value of the one that owns the animal. Finally, <laughs> last question about that. I'm very happy that, by and large, everybody's getting the right answers to these questions. I like to do this from time to time just to make sure that I'm doing my job, explaining it correctly. If you get the wrong answer, it's my fault because it means I didn't explain it properly, so you don't have to feel bad. I'll, 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 do, I'll, I'll feel bad for you. Now you have over here the last case that we discussed is let's say a ox gores and kills an Eved Kena'ani. Kill the Eved. So what does, what happens to the ox, first of all? Exactly. And how much is the compensation that you have to pay to the owner of the Eved? The value of the Eved. 30 something. 30 something. 30 real. 30 30 shekel. 30 shekel. 30 shekel. Right, which means normally we said you have to pay the value of the person, either the one that died or the owner. Here it's a set price. Even if the Ebit Kenani is worth a million dollars, if the short gores him, the payment to the owner is only a set fee of 30 shekel. Okay, Baruch Hashem, we learned, and we actually made chazara, became a little wiser in the laws of the Torah. We learned these shi'urim, the fu'ash shirema, chaya sarabat simcha, which you should have the fu'ash shirema, so tomorrow night we pick up Amen. this case, Amen. somebody falls into a board. So stay tuned. Tomorrow night is somebody falling into a pit. How do we judge? Stories are over. And we're continuing to learn some of the laws. I'm sure some of the people uh, never heard these laws before. They're not really taught that much because it's not so, what should I say, interesting as the story is. But nonetheless, it's part of the Torah. So we have to... uh, you know, we have to study it. So tonight we're going to study two laws. The first law we're going to study is the law of the board. Now we're studying these classes for the Fuashir Emma Hayasarabat Simha.
<clears throat> keep that in mind. What is a bore? A bore is a, a pit in the public domain. Somebody comes and uncovers, let's say, a manhole. Or he goes into the public domain and he actually digs a ditch. And that's where we pick up tonight's reading. Chapter 21, Pasuk 33. If a person opens a bore, opens the pit, which means he takes off the manhole cover. But you see them in the street, these uh, manhole covers. Now it's dangerous because somebody could fall in, a person or an animal. Yechre means he actually digs the bore. Either or. The Gemara says, and as she brings down, that there's two types of bores. There's two types of pits. And I'm talking about over the depth. One is called a bore of nine hand breaths, or nine tefahim. And one is called the bore of ten tefahim. I'll explain. A tefah is a measure used by the Torah. Let's say for argument's sake, a tefah is four inches. So therefore, nine tefahim would be a bore with the depth of 36 inches. The Gemara teaches us that a bore of nine tefahim or less has the ability to damage if somebody fell in, but really doesn't have the ability to kill. It's not deep enough. So therefore, if somebody would have died, we don't say that the person who dug the board is guilty. Because a board of nine tefahim, of let's say, what do we say, 36 inches, is not enough to kill. But if it's 10 tefahim, which would be 40 inches, then already it's deep enough to kill, and therefore the one that dug the bore or uncovered it will be liable. But as she just brings a hadush over here, why does the pasuk have to say that if a person dug the bore? The beginning of the pasuk said, if he opens the bore, that means all he has to do is remove the manhole cover, and he's guilty. So certainly if he digs, you don't have to tell me that. If, if, if all he did was uncover it and he's going to be guilty for exposing the board, so certainly if he actually digs a new board, why, was, why does it have to tell me something that is superfluous? And the Gemara learns from here that if somebody, let's say, dug a board that's nine tefahim, and then somebody else came after him, and dug it one tefah deeper and made from the nine tefahim a ten tefahim board. Who's going to be liable? The second guy. Even though the second guy only dug one tefah, but now he turned it into a board that has the ability to kill. So that's the chidush in the second part of the pasuk, that when somebody digs a board, even if he only dug one tefah, but he's going to be responsible now for the deaths that take place in that board.
Okay, now again, like we did last night, I'm gonna question our members at the end just to see if we have good comprehension on these. Now, the guy dug the bore or he took the manhole cover, which means if he just covers the board, then he's off the hook. But this guy didn't cover it. He left it exposed. And now what happened? An animal fell into the board. An animal fell into the board. What type of an animal? Torah says an ox or a donkey. But as she says, actually any animal that falls into the board. Now, the Gemara does teach us a law that says, Shor Velo Adam. That only if a Shor, an animal, fell into the board, the person is going to be Hayab, but not if a person falls into the board. Oh, so this is very important. We're only discussing animals falling into a pit now. If a person falls into the pit, we're not discussing. Shor velo adam, chamor velo kelim. And we're only talking about animals, people, things that are alive, and not on vessels. Okay, so that's what the Gemara teaches us on that. Now let's continue for a second. Beautiful. Good. So now what happens? Let's say an animal fell into the pit and the animal got damaged. Who has to pay? So interesting language of the Torah. The owner of the board has to pay. Now, who's the owner of the board? I know what you're going to say. The one that dug it. But wait, where is this board? It's in the public domain. The public domain doesn't, doesn't belong to anybody. So how can technically you call the person that dug the board the owner of the board? Public domain doesn't belong to a personal uh, person. It's not privately owned. So here we have one of the great Hadushim of the Gemara that says that even though he doesn't own the board, but the Torah makes it as if he owns it in order to make him guilty to pay. So this is an example of the trivia question. Give me something that damages that really you don't own, it's not your item that you own it, but you'll be guilty to pay if somebody gets damaged by it. And the example is going to be a board in the public domain. You don't own the board. Imagine the guy goes in the middle of Ocean Parkway, <clears throat> the service road over there, the bicycle path, and he digs a, uh, he digs a hole over there. He doesn't own it. Does that mean he can't, uh, he can't live there? It's not his. But since he dug it, the Torah says we're going to consider it as if it's yours. And therefore, 
yours, not that you own it in the sense that you could live there, but yours in the sense that you're going to be obligated to pay for the damages that were caused by it. So, Ba'ala Bor Yishalem, Kesef Yashim Alav. What does he pay? So the Gemara teaches us he could pay anything that's valued, that has value. Not only money. He could pay even bread. Let's say he has oats. You know what he has. He has a bunch of figs. He wants to pay the damages and that. He's allowed to pay in any which way. The person who got damaged, who lost his animal, cannot say, I want cash. I want traveler's checks. No, because I don't have that. I have, uh, I have a bunch of tomatoes. I'll pay in tomatoes. He can. The Torah says you can pay in any which way or form. Now, this is important. The, who gets the dead animal? Let's say the animal died. Well, it was a board of 10, let's say. So we said a board of 10, that's already able to kill the animal. So the animal died. Okay, now you have a dead carcass. So the Pasuk says, and the dead animal will be his. Who's his? So we give the dead animal to the owner, to the one that got damaged. Let's say the animal was $200. Now it's dead animal. Now it's depreciated. Now it's only worth 100 bucks. So how much does the guy who dug the board have to pay? Another hundred bucks to make him whole. Because he got a hundred dollars in carcass, but he's still missing a hundred dollars difference. So the Bala board, the one that dug the board, pays him the difference, and now it's a full payment. The met the met belongs to the um who determines that? Who determines what the, it's worth? Oh, the Bedin. Right. The Bedin determines that. Now let's get to the next case. We have to learn two cases tonight. I'm sorry. Who who gets the dead animal? Who the gets owner. The owner. The owner. The owner. Of Which the one? The one he pay or the who? The... I don't know. I'm confused. Sorry. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll say it again. You have a guy who. There's two people in the story. There's the guy who dug the well, who dug the pit. Okay. He's the damager. And then you have a guy who owns the animal. Mm -hmm. so this, let's let's you know what? Let's let's give names to these people. Reuven dug the well, dug the pit, and Shimon's animal fell in. So now Reuven owns Shimon money because he killed his animal. Okay. So therefore, they give the dead animal to Shimon. It's his animal. They, they give the dead animal to him. He keeps the carcass. But uh -huh. obviously, it's not worth what it was. And then Reuven has to pay him the difference. And therefore, he makes him whole and he gets full payment. That's the law that's called bor. Thank you. Better? Okay, Better. Good. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, it was confusing, Sandra? Okay. My wife says it was confusing also. But everything I say to my wife is confusing. <laughs> no, the names help a lot, actually. Okay. Okay. There we go. All right, Rabotai, 
now we move on to the next case. Okay, so we'll give names again. Truth is, you're right. In Yeshiva, when we talk about these cases, we give names. So, yeah, no, that's how in Yeshiva we say it. Ovens, we'll use the names. Okay, I accept. Now we're talking about not a ball. We're talking about an ox. An ox that either gores another ox or it pushes it or it bites it. All different types of damages. So here we go. Reuven's ox damages Shimon's ox. We read the Pasuk. Shimon's ox died as a result of the damages from Reuven's ox. So Reuven owes Shimon. Now watch what the Pasuk says over here. I'm going to read you the Pasuk. I'm going to explain it. Umacheru et You sell the living ox, the hatsu et kaspo, and you split its money. The gam et amet, and you also take the dead animal, the carcass, and you split that and divide it as well. What does it mean? I'll give you the case. Rashi explains to us both animals are worth the same amount of money. The Uven's animal is worth 200 and Shimon's animal is worth 200. Yeah, both live animals equal 200. So we're starting in that case, easy case. The Uven's animal kills Shimon's animal. Now you have a dead animal on the floor. The dead animal is worth 100. Because it depreciated. And the live animal of the Uven is worth 200. So the Torah says you split both animals, meaning you split the animal that's dead. Well, if you split it, 100 becomes 50. So both the Uven and Shimon get 50. And then they split the live animal. The live animal is worth 200. So they right. split amongst themselves 100 each. So therefore, how much does Shimon end up with? 150. Now let's go slow. Even though the damage was 100 to him. Because again, his animal is worth 200. He got 100 back in the carcass. So that's not a damage. He has 100. So what did he lose? He lost 100. But at the end of the day, he's only getting... 50 of that 100. This is the famous law that the Gemara refers to as Hatsin Nezek. The law says on the first three times that an ox gores, the owner of the ox only has to pay half damages. You understand? Wow. Half damages. That's a big hadush. Again, why is it half damages? The, the Shimon's damaged animal was worth 200. Now it's dead. Good. A dead animal has value. It's still a carcass. It's still meat. So therefore, the dead animal is worth 100. So that's not a damage. He has 100. So what did he lose? He lost 100. So Reuven only has to pay from that 150. And therefore, he gets 150. Even though 
he's out 50, but that's the law. Right, he's out the animal, monetarily I'm talking. He's out 100, he's out 50 bucks, but that's the law of Hatsin Nezik. That's an amazing law. Now, you're going to ask me a question. Why does it have to give it to me in such a strange way? Split both animals. Split the live animal and split the dead animal. Well, in this case, where everything is equal, it works out very nice. Both animals are worth 200. And then the carcass was worth 100. So therefore, if you split the 100, it's 50 each. And you split the live animal, it's 100 each. So Shimon ends up getting 150, which is the perfect amount of Hatsinez, it works out. But let's say, let's say a different case. Rashi brings this case as well. Let's say Reuven's animal is worth 100 and Shimon's animal is worth 500. Now, if you're going to follow this uh, procedure over here, so and Shimon's animal died, finished, the animal's dead. So you're going to give Shimon half of Reuven's animal that's 50 bucks. So that's going to be much less than Hatsinezik. But the law is he only has to pay from his animal. He does not have to pay more than his animal is worth. It doesn't mean he doesn't go out of pocket in this law. They take his animal and sell it, and he gets half that, and that's it. So therefore, there are going to be some cases where Shimon's animal died is not going to even get half of the compensation. Since the money is only taken from Uvain's animal. So again, in the case where Uvain's animal is 100 bucks and it damages or kills an animal of 500 bucks, so Shimon's out a lot of money. Even if he gives him the full value of his animal, it's only 100 bucks. He doesn't have to take any money out of his pocket. That's what she comes along and says, Actually, he gives him the full animal. He gives him the full animal, so he gives him 100. Okay, fine, but he, he, he killed an animal of 500. Doesn't matter. The point of the Torah is to tell us we only calculate this damage from the animals themselves. Let's compare it to what we said earlier. Earlier, we learned the case of boar. When it comes to boar, when it comes to the case of uh, an animal falling into a pit, there he has to take money out of his pocket. He can pay him in tomatoes, like we said, but he's got to make them whole. But in the case of an animal goring an animal, the first three times, the Torah says he only has to pay half damages at most. And he only has to pay from the animals themselves. Are we clear so far, time? Okay, now we get to one more law. The last law, then we're going to get to some questions. Still technical, but this is the real learning, Rabotai. And for, for many people, they never heard these laws before. So it's extra, extra credit that we're getting. We're finally delving into the, even if you go to classes, these are the laws they don't talk about. Because they're not stories, they're not interesting to people to, you know, read a book. This is uh, the halachot that we learn in yeshiva. So you should be proud of yourselves. But let's say this ox gored already three times. It's not the first time or the second time, it's the third time. In that case, the Torah comes along and says, you have to pay full damages. 
You have to pay full damages. And the dead animal belongs to Shimon again. And the, the Uven has to pay the difference. So let's give our case again. Let's give the case where the Uven's animal, it's not the first time it gored. It gored on Monday, it gored on Tuesday, gored meaning it attacked. And this is the third time. So this, this is called a wild ox. Now the Uven's ox is worth 100. And it killed Shimon's ox that worth 500. Good. So now the dead animal is worth 100. Okay, so Shimon keeps the dead animal. He keeps his animals, but that's only worth 100. He's still out 400. Now the Uven has to pay him $400. Now we don't say split the animal, pay him the dead. No, after it's an animal of three times that it gores, the payment changes. So we have over here, huh. I'll say it the way of the Gemara. Tam mishalem hatsinezek, muad mishalem nezek shalem. I'll say it in English. Tam is an animal, the first three times it gores, the payment is half damages. Mu'ad is an animal that is prone to damage, which is three times, pays full damages. It's the only case we have. You have half damages and full damages. Are we clear on that, Rabotai? Is it from sunrise to sunset? The days account? Or from the night to the night? Oh, it, it, it can even happen in the same day. It can go three times in the same day. Uh-huh. Okay. It doesn't have to be three separate days. Even though the Torah does say, you're making a point, because Torah says, Shon nagal It sounds like, you know, it gored today and yesterday, but that's 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 just an example. Even if it gored on the same day, three times, it becomes an automatic... Uh... So the first, I'm sorry, Rabbi, so the first time he has to pay half. The second time he pay half. The third time he have to pay full. I mean, the, the, okay. On the third time? That's right. After no, third time. Right. Third. So now let's review the halachot that we learned tonight. I'm going to ask you some questions and let's see if we can get the right answers. A person goes into the public domain and there's a manhole and he takes the manhole off. He takes the cover off. At that point, when it comes to damages, who is the owner of that manhole? The one who dug the, 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 the bore. Correct, which is a hadush. Even though technically he doesn't own it, but for this, we consider him the Ba'alabur, and therefore, he has to pay. Now, I'll give you a case. Let's say you have, give me a case where somebody who digs a bore, and he only digs it one tefah, and it'll be hayav. Nine to ten. Very good. Beautiful. Nine to ten. Reuven came and dug the bore nine. We said nine can only damage. Doesn't have the ability to kill. Shimon came and added an extra tefah. That's Shimon's bore now. Because he turned it from a nine bore to a ten bore. Excellent. And now when the animal falls in, Shimon's going to have to pay. Now, when we pay bore damages, 
can we pay it in other valuable things besides money? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. You can even pay it in brand, the Gemara says. And brand? Brand, like raisin brand. You remember a box of raisin brand and pay the difference. The Gemara is not talking about the, the really brand. It's a brand. <clears throat> yeah, it's the chef of the <clears throat> without the waste. Vehamet <clears throat> We learned that if Shimon's animal fell into the pit, he keeps his animal, and then Uban has to pay the difference. Very good. Now let's talk about oxes boring each other. What is the ruling in the payment of an ox that gores the first two times? How much he is the payment? He pay half, half the what's worth. Half the damages. Now, it's true he pays half the damages, which means he doesn't pay more than half damages. But as we learned, since he's only paying it from his animal, it's possible to pay less. Like in a case where an animal of Reuben was worth 100 and killed an animal of Shimon was worth 500. So even if he gives him his animal, it's only 100. It's even going to be less than Hatzinezik. The point of the laws of the goring animals, you only pay from the animal itself, not more. And the last law we learned is, is if it is an animal that gored already three times, so then already he must pay full nezek. That's called nezek shalem. Now there is one more pasuk. I know the hour is late. It's Thursday night. Custom is to learn a little extra. Just to right, finish. Can I ask one, can I ask yeah. one question? What happens if Ruven digs a hole three tefachim and another guy and Ruven comes and digs four tefachim? So a total of seven. Who would be liable? The second one or the first one? The second. The second one. Why is that? That doesn't sound right. I mean, okay. sure it is. No, no. T -t 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 tell, me, tell me what your logic is. Because the first one who dug it is liable. If the second one dugs it one more tipper, then he would be liable. Okay, and then in this case, you want to say that the second guy is not liable? I want to say the second guy is liable and the first guy is not. I mean, sorry. Okay. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. The first guy is and the second guy is not. Oh, you want to say the first guy is? Why? Because he started it. He was the original. Yeah, but once the second guy came and he, instead of covering the board, he should have covered the board the second guy. The second guy came along and he added to it. So now already, once he added, he didn't, he, he left the damage as is. There's plausibility to say that he will be Hayab. You agree in the case of nine to 10, because they yes. changed the status of the board. 100%. Good. So in this case, you want to argue that maybe both of them will have to pay. Correct. Maybe both of them. They should you be both liable. Good question. Yes. <laughs> yes, I can hear both liable. I can hear both liable in this case because they both uh, 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 participated in making the damage. 
sense here. Okay, thank you. Although, although, although you could argue, although you could argue the second guy really didn't add anything more than the first guy. Right, because he didn't do an extra tefach. He didn't go to you, which means it was a damaging board already. And the second guy didn't make it any worse. The more I think of the case as we talk it out, I would agree with you, my friend. In this case, it seems that only the first guy would be Hayab. The second guy didn't add anything. Only Correct. when it goes from nine to 10, then already he changed the status of the board from a damaging board to a killer board. That's already a different item. I think we're in agreement. Thank you. It's good to yes. speak these cases out so you get the logic. It's a much appreciated. Now, the last case is a lesson to be learned. That's, we're going to learn it now. A guy stole an ox or a sheep. Okay? In the olden days, they didn't rob banks. because They didn't have banks. So what did they rob? They broke into a guy's corral in the backyard. And you steal, a, uh, you steal an ox or you steal a sheep. That was considered, you know, the theft in those days. Now, what did he do besides stealing it? Utbacho. He slaughtered the animal. So that's the second crime. Or he sold it. So again, it's two cases here. It's he stole and slaughtered or stole and sold. What's the punishment he has to pay? If he did this to an ox, he has to pay five times. Look at that, five times payment. And if it was a sheep, he only has to pay four times. So again, five times on the ox, four times on the sheep. And now the question over here is, why? Why should there be a difference between how many times he has to pay between an ox and a sheep? If the number is five, it should be five times across the board. If the number is four, it should be four. Why does it fluctuate between an ox and a sheep? Because an ox works for him. He does work for him. The sheep does not. He uses it as a, you know, a vessel. But, not a, but, but he didn't use it as a vessel. He didn't use it. He sold it. He sold it and he slaughtered it or slaughtered. But the owner, the owner uses it. And, and, and let's say it's the same same value. Let's say it's the same value. The ox is a small ox and the sheep is a big sheep, so the equal value. The Torah still says this ox is usually four. does those type of things. Maybe, maybe it's Again? like the animal itself. Maybe the animal itself is more prone. So I'm going to tell you something that, that she says. It's a big hadush. And only the Torah thinks this way. You see, in, in, in regular law, they only take into consideration the victim. And nobody cares about the perpetrator. Because the perpetrator, Nasha, guilty guy, who cares about him, let him drop dead. He's a ganab, nobody cares. He deserves whatever happened. Let him get struck by lightning. Nobody cares about the perpetrator. But the Torah is very sensitive to understand both sides of the equation. 
And the Torah looks at even the feelings and the uh, mindset of the perpetrator. What do I mean to say? So that she says, when a person steals a, an ox, how do you steal an ox? I never stole an ox before, but I, I can imagine. It's very easy. You take the ox by the neck. Sometimes it even has a, a leash and you pull it out of the corral and you walk with it in the public domain. Now, in the olden days, it wasn't so uncommon to see people walking with their oxen in the public domain. Very good. But how do you steal a sheep? A sheep, exactly. You got to pick it up and carry it. Now, to do that in the public domain is embarrassing. But the perpetrator needs to make a living. So he has to embarrass himself to even carry a sheep in the public domain to do something that's degrading to him. Now, we're not whitewashing the sin. He's a criminal. But the Torah says, since he had to shame himself, the Torah says that already causes him not to have to pay as much. We're going to lighten the sentence that he only has to pay four times. But when it comes to an ox that you took it out in the normal manner, since he didn't have to shame himself, so therefore he'll pay five. An amazing sensitivity, which by the way, it's probably uh, the first time that anybody ever thought about the feelings of this perpetrator. That's, he probably became a thief because nobody cared about him and he became a bum. And all of a sudden the Torah, by punishing him, rehabilitates him. In the punishment is a rehabilitation to the guy to say, you know what, we take your feelings into consideration. Even though you did something wrong, but you embarrassed yourself. Were you worried about my feelings? Nobody ever was worried about my fear. Torah's worried. Even at the time that we're punishing him, Torah says a certain sensitivity. That's the first interpretation. He gets, it's almost as if he gets a, 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 a shame discount. Bizayon discount. You never heard of the Bizayon discount. Because he shamed himself, wow. there's a discount. Now, there's another interpretation that I think our members mentioned, and we'll say it now. That she says, how important is it uh, the Torah deems work. The Torah likes work and people that work and people that are productive. You might not believe that. Today, if you tell somebody that he goes to work, they tell you, Rasha, what are you going to work for? You have to learn. But the Torah believes that a person is allowed to go to work and should be productive. And in the olden days, as was mentioned by one of our members here tonight, which animal was the work animal? The ox. Yeah. The sheep, they don't work. The sheep is really for wool and then eventually lamb chops. But it doesn't work. But the ox works. So by stealing somebody's ox, you now took away something that's productive in his work. Therefore, you have to pay more. And therefore, since the sheep is not a work animal, you have to pay less. And that's a, another very, very, very important lesson. Because you took somebody away from his work, which is the owner, the Oven, was, as a farmer, he needs his ox to plow the ground. You took away his, his tools of the trade, where now he cannot work like he used to. So the Torah says you have to compensate much more for that. 
And therefore you see over here importances when you see somebody working, don't interrupt them. We always hear of the concept called bitul Torah, but now you're hearing the new concept, bitul Melacha. That's a, a great lesson. When a person's working, he's not allowed to waste his time. When you're working, you have to put 60 minute hours in. You cannot uh, all of a sudden waste time. And because he stole the ox and he took away from the work of the of the Reuven, who he stole it from, the Torah says he has to pay, he has to pay more. All right, that's the chapter. We're done with it. And Baruch Hashem, we learned it uh, uh, properly. It did go over time. My apologies, but Baruch Hashem is for a good cause. For the Fu'ashiram of Hayasarabat, Simha, El Narefan, Allah, Betuk Sharhola, Mo Israel. Amen. Amen.